Episode 19, From the Party Life to a Purpose-Filled Life, with Humanitarian and Charity Water CEO, Scott Harrison. My name is Dan Mason. In 2012, I was overweight, getting divorced, battling depression, and feeling trapped in a career where I was successful, but bored and unfulfilled. And it's actually the greatest gift I've ever been given. I used my pain as a springboard to discover my life's purpose. Now, I want to share the same tools and strategies which help transform my life with you. So you can live Life Amplified. Oh, I'm so excited for today's episode. Thank you so much for being here with me. Our guest today has been on my bucket list since last fall when I saw him speak at an entrepreneur convention in Dallas. Imagine being in your 20s and literally having the world at your fingertips. Every night you're rubbing elbows with the Manhattan elite. You're going to the biggest parties, drinking expensive champagne. You're driving the BMW and always buying a new Rolex while vacationing around the world. But what do you do when that lifestyle still leads you feeling empty. That's what happened to our guest today. Scott Harrison spent 10 years throwing lavish parties for the likes of MTV, VH1, Bacardi, and Elle magazine. His life at that time was all about chasing models and mingling with the Manhattan elite, and it also led to a life of addiction and emptiness. When he was 28, Scott had a crisis of conscience during a vacation in Uruguay, and it led him to change his life. Today, he is the founder and CEO of Charity Water. Water.org. It's a nonprofit organization working to bring clean and safe water to people in developing countries, and their goal is to bring clean drinking water to 100 million people by the year 2020. And during this episode, we'll talk about how you can get involved and help us help them fulfill their mission. And this is unlike any charity that you've heard about. Just wait till you see how they're reinventing the concept of charity. This is going to be such an amazing conversation today. Some of the topics that Scott and I will discuss is how he hit rock bottom while still at the top and how it changed his life. How experiencing extreme poverty in Liberia changed his relationship with money. How the skills that you used in your former career will always serve you as you build a new life and career moving forward. The moment he learned with certainty that one person can make a difference. Why telling your story can inspire others and impact the world. Why he set out on a mission to reinvent what charity is and how this applies to the Charity Water mission. How a nine-year-old girl's dying wish in Seattle helped create a global movement. Why focusing on your natural gifts is more important than focusing on the things you don't know. Finally, we'll discuss what World Water Day is, why it's important, and how you can get involved. And I am so excited to team up with my friends at the Elvis Duran Show this week to raise awareness for this charity. Would love for you to get involved and I'm going to dangle some bonuses from my end that I'll tell you about at the end of the episode to incentivize you to act today. In the meantime though, just sit back, relax, prepared to be inspired. This is an amazing human being and I hope you love this guy the way I do. Here is Charity Water CEO, Scott Harrison. Scott Harrison, welcome to Life Amplified, my friend. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, I can't wait to share with my audience the work that you're doing and all the amazing work and what Charity Water is, especially here because we're celebrating World Water Day this month. So we'll talk about why that's important. But I want to give people a, a bigger sense on you and your journey because so much of this podcast is about people and sometimes the twists and turns we take to eventually discover our purpose and bring it to life. You've got a fascinating fascinating story. I mean, it started out, you know, pretty normal. You were a kid playing piano in the church and growing yeah. up, you know, just a pretty average 
family, yet there were some circumstances in your life that really led you toward helping other people early on. Can you tell people about what happened? You know, my mom was was really sick growing up. So I uh, I was an only child in a family that had this, this mysterious and bizarre illness. Uh, when I was four, we'd moved into a new house and there was a carbon monoxide gas leak in the house. And my mom was really the only one, you know, hit hard by this and she passed out and uh, was diagnosed with carboxyhemoglobin blood poisoning and effectively her immune system just shut down irreparably. So she went from, imagine almost in a day, from a healthy, vibrant journalist, writer, mom, wife, to completely debilitated, wearing masks, connected to oxygen. And her body just couldn't handle anything chemical from this point on. So whether it was perfume or nail polish remover or the cigarette smoke or exhaust from cars, she just had to completely isolate. So, you know, I grew up in, in a caregiver role, really, doing the cooking and the cleaning and, and helping to take care of her. And I wanted to be a doctor growing up. So I, I wanted to help sick people like my mom get get well. And you know, was was brought up in a family of faith, just a, a non-denominational Christian family and going to church every Sunday and playing by the rules and playing the piano, as he said. And then at 18, I just completely lost the plot. I mean, I went berserk living out the uh, the prodigal son story, I guess. I mean, yeah. I basically yeah. moved to New York City, grew my hair down, joined a band, a rock and roll band, and started doing drugs, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, gambling, and going to strip clubs. <laughs> so yeah, right. I just... <laughs> I kind of went from uh, plan A to plan you know, Z, I guess, in, in overnight. And when you think about that, just to take that sharp detour over here into a completely different lane, what do you think that that was about? What causes somebody to, to make yeah, a turn gosh. like that? This is the uh, yeah the, the $10,000 question. You know, I've just spent the last year writing a book, you know, on my experience growing up and building the organization, and it still kind of mystifies me. I don't want to blame it on my parents. They did a great job. I think I was just a little punk. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I just didn't want to follow the rules. You know, I followed them until just for so long, and I just didn't want anyone telling me what to do. I was smarter. I had a better plan, and there was just such a great lack of wisdom in that move and really don't know the answer. I mean, to continue the story, you know, I basically destroyed my life and my life looked amazing on the outside. I was working at the 40 of the hottest nightclubs in New York City over a decade and flying around the world uh, to fashion week. I drove a BMW, I had a Rolex, I, you know, was drinking thousand dollar bottles of champagne that other people were paying for. Just kind of left with this slow decline of soul sucking narcissism, you know, hedonism, sycophancy. And 10 years later, it was kind of the shell of the person that I'd been brought up to be. In some ways, like I hit bottom at the top in a way. I just realized there would never be enough money. There, Somebody would always have a more beautiful girl. Somebody would have a better car. I was in the endless pursuit of self. Yeah. And lust and money and fame and ego and you know all the stuff that just becomes a, a destructive force at least it was in my life so you know i had this epiphany and i i, I was kind of fortunate to take as or, or attempt to try and take as drastic a change away from that as i had in in stepping into it and i was in punta de lesta in uruguay uh, party town that we would go to and i remember we had rented this amazing estate and my girlfriend was in the cover of el magazine at the time and you know we blew up a thousand dollars of fireworks and we were drinking Dom Perignon. <laughs> I mean why, why wouldn't was, you right a thousand dollars of like, fireworks what, what else are you going to do with the money? 
what are you going to do? You know, and in South America it was like $10,000 of fireworks. You know? yeah. I just realized that uh, I needed to change. You know, I needed to make a change. And, you know, there were these little glimpses. You know, I remember once being in a casino with one of our clients, effectively, a guy who would come into nightclubs and spend five Gs. And I watched him play Baccarat, actually. And he was gambling $10,000 a hand, and he didn't care if he won or lost. And I remember that apathy, that indifference just kind of struck me. This one's waiting at the end, right? So I just kind of got this picture of what it might look like to play out uh, another... <laughs> year or 10 years of, of this adventure. And uh, and I came back to New York and did some soul searching and tried to find my way back to this lost Christian faith. But I think in a very different way as an adult opting back in, got to do it maybe without some of the trappings, the, the religiosity that had really turned me off as a kid. I decided to sell everything that I owned and imagine what the exact opposite of my life might look like. And my answer was go serve the poor on a humanitarian mission for a year. You know, give back one of the 10 years that you've wasted selfishly and see if you can be of any use to anyone else. Like, imagine this. You're like the center of the party scene for a great part of Manhattan. You've got a huge mailing list of people who are hearing from you on a regular basis about where the next party is, where they're going to go to buy the next overpriced bottle of champagne or vodka. You're surrounded with people who probably treat you like the deity of the party scene. To some people, that's not a bad life. But you make this decision that I I'm selling everything and I want to go help the poor. What is the first thing out of people's mouth when you tell them that? Some of them thought I was just doing this to get girls. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm, oh, my gosh. God's going to Africa now. Oh, please. Oh, he's you know, holier than now. Oh, look fancies at him. himself a humanitarian. <laughs> so, you know, it, it took a it took a while to win the credibility, I think, of, you know, some people that I, you know, partied with a week earlier. Right. Others, though were like, this is amazing. I wish I could do something like that. You know, I, I, I sense that same deep longing for purpose, for what might it look like to use your gifts and your talent and your money in the service of others. I wound up writing this kind of long email to the whole, you know, so I had a guest list of maybe 15,000 people at the time that, you know, we would invite to various parties. And, you know, I blasted the list saying, hey, I'm out of here. Um, I'm joining a medical mission. I'm going to a country called Liberia uh, that's come out of a 14-year civil war. This country has no electricity, no no running water, no sewage system, you know, it's completely broken. And I'm going to see if I can be helpful. And I'm kind of joking, I would say, you know, a couple of the responses were like, dude, you know, you're going to get so many girls when you get back. Uh, <laughs> most people were actually intrigued, you know, I can't wait to see what you experience, you know, let me know how you find it. Oh, I've always wanted to do something like this one day. My group was encouraging me. Okay, so you know, this is other piece, then I get out there, I'm going to join uh, this group called Mercy Ships 522 foot medical ship staffed by volunteer crew. So about 350 volunteer crew, we're going to sail into Liberia, and we're going to help the poorest people in the world with no access to medical care. Before I walk up the gangway of this huge ship, I mean, it's an ocean liner that had been converted uh, into this medical boat, uh, I quit everything. I stopped smoking. Um, I quit drugs. I never gambled again. You know, I never looked at porn again or set foot in a strip club. I just kind of had this cold turkey or all in moment where I just, you know, I really needed to uh, to make that change. 
Yeah, and never really looked back from that moment. So, you know, I joined this ship. What other detail here? I had to pay them $500 a month to volunteer. You I mean, couldn't this was... even, like, get hired by anybody because your background was so out of alignment with what these charities were. So you literally had to go out of pocket and pay them to be a volunteer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I forgot that piece. So, <laughs> you know, I, I had applied to a bunch of organizations like, I don't know, Save the Children and Oxfam and UNICEF, like the ones that I'd heard of. And, yeah, they all rejected me because how would a nightclub promoter be useful in any context, in any serious mission. That was kind of a slap in the face, right? I sell my possessions. I'm, you know, hey, world, Scott Harrison is now ready for service. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wanted you. Humanitarian, <laughs> uh, like, ah, no thanks, kid. <laughs> the opportunity that I finally found, I had to pay $500 a month for the opportunity to serve. Look, my, my heart was kind of immediately broken. My third day, actually, on the, the mission, the government had given us a football arena, the, the soccer arena. We were going to screen patients. So before the, sh the ship with the doctors had come in to the port, a small advance team had flyered the country. They put up pictures and they'd said, hey, if you've got a giant facial tumor, if you were born with a cleft lip, if you uh, have flesh eating disease, if you've been burned by the rebels during the war and your body parts are fused together, turn up on this day and our doctors will try to help you. And we'll, we'll screen you and we'll schedule you for surgery if we can help. So my third day, you know, in Africa, I remember at five in the morning, rounding the corner and seeing over 5,000 people that had come sick to see our doctors. And we only had 1,500 available slots to help people. There was just this terrifying moment, like, oh my gosh, we're going to send 3,000 people home with no hope. Some of them, they walk from neighboring countries. They've been on the road for a month. Yeah. Just yeah. hope of wow. their child doctor that could help. You've spent the past decade of your life or so surrounded by the nightclub scene where it's very much about image. Yeah, models and bottles as we used to say. Yeah, what designer <laughs> are you wearing? What's the Rolex? You're driving a BMW and here you walk into the poorest country in the world just coming out of like a 14-year war and you walk into these conditions. What is that experience like? So often we think that we have problems in our life, but then you walk into that and I got to think on some level, you're like, oh my God, I have no problems. It's really true. And your, your relationship with money, the way you think of money just changes so radically, you know, in a country where people are living on, you know, less than a dollar a day. Um, and, you know, everybody's heard that, right? Dollar a day, dollar a day, a billion people living on a dollar a day. And until you realize what that's like and how the money that we trivialize uh, can actually make a significant impact in someone's life. There's no way of really understanding it. So my job on the ship was to document all of the patients that we were able to schedule before surgery and after surgery. And I remember taking this woman Beatrice home once and she had a six pound massive facial tumor. It had taken out her jaw, half of her nose was gone. I mean, this is serious, serious trauma. And I wound up taking her home to her house and going in and visiting her over the next couple months as her body was kind of heal, healing and her face was bouncing back. And one day she said, my biggest problem is that my roof leaks, like, and I need to replace my roof. And I'm like, oh man, you know, I'm a volunteer. I'm, I'm kind of broke. You know, how much would that cost? I don't know that I could help. She says $20, like $20 to put a brand new, you know, tin corrugated iron roof on, you know, her, her very modest house and stop her from sitting there during the rainy season in a puddle. Literally uh, the price of what somebody would pay for an overpriced vodka tonic at the bar that's right, during a that's New Year's right. Eve party can finance a roof. 
for somebody yeah. in this country. You know, you start thinking of things in in that context. It costs us about $150 to perform a cataract surgery that would give someone their sight back. And I remember this one woman named Marguerite, uh, and I, I photographed her blind, and she was in her 20s, late 20s. She wasn't born blind. She had just gotten these massive double cataracts because of the exposure to the equatorial sun, no UV protection, right, no Ray-Bans. You know, I'm looking at her, I'm photographing her with these two cloudy eyes. Now, she has a daughter that she's never seen. She'd been blind for about eight years. Unreal. And I watched this surgery, right? 150 bucks. I mean, I joke that it looks so simple. I felt like I could have done it myself, right? Little slit in the eye, pull out the bad lens with tweezers, insert the new lens, and then, you know, a quick sew. Thing took maybe 30 minutes. I was there a couple of days later when they removed the patch. And I remember just, I had my camera on continuous shooting and I shot this sequence where, you know, the patch comes off and she starts yelling and screaming and she tackles me hugging me. She tackles the nurse. You know, this is a 28 or 29 year old woman that's gotten her sight back for 150 bucks and put that in terms of a, of a nice dinner for four, you know, for a family of four with wine or how much would we pay for our sight? This experience was really rich for me and, and I wound up spending time in a leprosy college colony and trying to get medical supplies to this leprosy colony. And the whole time I'm blasting my 15,000 person email list with these really outrageously graphic images. I took 50,000 photos, wow. digital photos that first year. So, you know, imagine being on my club list and getting invited to, uh, I don't know, the Prada, you know, store opening in Soho, Manhattan. And then like three weeks later, you're getting a picture of a 14 year old boy suffocating to death on his face with a pink fleshy tumor, you know, and I'm cliffhanging the story like this is Alfred. Uh, this tumor has been growing and taking over his face. He's headed into surgery today. Wait to see how the story ends. A day later, I would send the whole list, the pictures of Alfred in surgery and then recovering on the ward with his new face. And, you know, back then open rates were like 100%. So, you know, there were definitely some unsubscribes. Then, you know, I realized the power of this, of this visual storytelling. You know, people started to send money and they started to say, how can I volunteer and start applying uh, to Mercy Ships as well? to come on board. So a year basically turned into two. And in the second year, I came across the problem of water. So I got off the ship and was spending a lot of time, you know, in the rural areas. And as I went into these villages, I saw the water that people were drinking and it was swamp water. I mean, people were drinking from nasty, green, brown, viscous ponds and rivers. I mean, this is water we wouldn't let our animals drink. And in the video, I mean, people are drinking leeches that are in the water. Absolutely correct. First of all, I learned that half the country is drinking bad water. Okay, so you've got a couple million people drinking bad water. And when we say bad water, just for perspective, this isn't something like where you show up with a Brita filter and a pitcher and it's going to clean. I mean, you're talking about like toxic swamp water. Yeah, you're talking about going to, you know, not the pristine lake in your town, you know, but that kind of the one with algae growing on it, you know, the pond with the lily pads that you can't see the bottom. For us, like Central Park Pond in New York City is green. And um, but for some it's people, alive, that basically. is like the only source of water that they can get to come back to their yeah. families, to wash their bodies, yeah. to drink. A tenth of the world. Yeah. So 660 million people. So one out of every 10 people alive today is drinking that kind of water. The big realization for me, and this, this kind of ties to the work I was doing with the doctors is, you know, okay, so you look at 
a child drink brown river water and you know there's this recoil in one case a, a child was drinking you know this terrible water and she would vomit on her shirt every time she would drink from from the water you know so you have just this like oh my gosh this is unjust reaction and then as i started to learn more about the the problems of bad water i came across a world health organization stat 52% of all disease is directly related to bad water so 52% of all the sickness in the world is is because of bad water and a lack of sanitation. Uh, here we are with these doctors, right, sending thousands of people away without hope. But if they just had access to the most basic need for health and for living, then we would have had enough doctors. So I really came to water through the the medical lens, you know, through the eyes of this is making so many people sick. Maybe I get to play doctor at scale. We would touch 1,500 individual lives with transformative surgery over an eight-month period. But if you went out and gave people clean water, you could touch hundreds of thousands of lives. We see these stories on the news that enrage us. There's all sorts of injustice, inequality. We see it, you know, in, in our country, but we see it all over the world. But where does the switch come from where you believe that you could be the catalyst to be the solution? Because a lot of people are like, well, I'm one person. What can I do? I was raising money through these emails. I would tell a story of need and then people would respond. Uh, I would shoot a video of a community drinking dirty water and somebody would say, hey, I want to send the money to build a well. So I saw this done in a really small way. Um, someone would say, well, I want to pay for that cataract surgery. I want to build that well. I want to help with that roof. I want to help put that woman's kids through college. I want to help that family move out of the refugee camp because I learned the story of that family and the hardship they've been through. So, you know, I had these very small glimpses of if you tell stories that are true, people will respond. People yeah. want to help. So I came back from this trip changed. You know, I, I had left at 28 this kind of scumbag, but really wanting to change direction of my life. And I just came back a completely different person. So, you know, I was almost unrecognizable to my friends when I came back because I didn't swear anymore. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't getting drunk with them. I wasn't smoking. I wasn't doing cocaine anymore. So uh, I wasn't fun. And then I was running around with a laptop showing him pictures of tumors and dirty water. Uh, so I was a buzzkill. But what's interesting to me, what I notice is like, even what you describe as being the scumbag version of yourself, at the end of the day, even when we're not making the best life decisions, even in those moments, we're still trying to meet a need on some level. So it just sounds like you found a higher level way to meet the need rather than being a guy who was significant and mattered through the clothes you wore, through the Rolex you had. You just found a higher level way to make an impact and make a difference. And it's not about promoting the parties. Now it's just about promoting charity and promoting a noble cause. Well, it is. It's a party where everybody on earth gets clean drinking water. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Everybody's invited. Is this when charity water began? Yeah, so I come back and, you know, my first idea was actually to help Mercy Ships raise more awareness and money. And long story short, they kind of said thanks, but no thanks. You know, hey, thanks for raising a bunch of awareness and money through through serving with us. But I wanted to do grand exhibitions of the photos around the world and video walls. And I wanted to take a, the Mercy Ships kind of show around the world. And, uh, you know, they're a pretty conservative organization based in, in Texas and said, really grateful for your help, but why don't you go do your own thing? I needed an issue, so I had the issue with water. I could kind of still be helping mercy ships, right? If I could make everybody well in the world that's drinking bad water, there would be a lot less need for, for their service and they'd be turning less people away. I have my issue. Okay, this is going to be my mission. Bring clean drinking water to every single person on earth before I die or, or be a part of that movement. Then I start talking to my friends and I realize that this is not going to be easy because people are really cynical about charity. 
remember, I am not a, I am not a part of the philanthropic system. I am a 30-year-old ex-nightclub promoter talking to everyday people who are not giving to the Red Cross and not giving to the United Way. And, you know, they had a ton of excuses. They said charities waste money. They said charities are black holes. I don't know where my money is going. I don't know how much is actually going to get to the people uh, at the end of the line. I realized there was data behind this. I came across, uh, I think it was a USA Today survey that said 42% of Americans distrust charities. Uh, and while you did a poll founding 70% of Americans think charities waste money or badly waste money. I thought, okay, wow, there's a huge problem and also an opportunity. Uh, if I'm going to try and raise the amount of awareness then, and money that is needed, then we're going to need to reinvent charity. We're going to have to bring these disenchanted people back to the table of giving and generosity, give them a, a business model and a cause they can believe in, and we might be able to unlock new philanthropic capital. All right, so this is really important. I wasn't after other charities' money. I wasn't trying to take someone who was giving to save the children and say, oh, no, charity water's better. I was trying to take someone who would never give to save the children, who wasn't giving at all. And I had a couple ideas just talking to people of, of what they would want the perfect charity to look like. And a lot of it was around just simply transparency in money. How does the money flow? Where does my money go? And I thought, well, what if I could take the number one objection people have about giving to charity, and that's where does my money go or how much actually reaches people? And what if I could just eliminate it, obliterate it? And, and I thought, well, what if I could promise with Charity Water that 100% of all donations we would ever collect would go directly to build water projects that would help people get clean water. You know, people said, well, that's the stupidest business idea we've ever heard because you'll go bankrupt. Like, how would you ever pay yourself a salary one day? How would you pay for an office? How would you hire people? And I said, I I'm not sure, but I bet I could get some visionary people excited about paying for those unsexy costs, those overhead costs, if we were transparent with those costs and if we treated these people like investors. So I literally opened up two bank accounts and said they'll never touch each other. Public money only goes in the water account and then I'll separately fundraise for anything that is not a direct water project for, for you know a salary one day or an office one day. So then secondly, I kind of realized that by separating the money flow, then we could actually use the technology available to tell people the impact of their money. So where the money went, because we wouldn't be stepping on it. It wouldn't just be going into a fungible big pot. Charity Water and Google Earth started the same year. And I realized that Google had built this free place where we could put forward to the public the photos and GPS proof of every water point we would ever build around the world. And we could say, hey, look, your money went here. Here's a satellite image of the wow. well that was built. Wow. Photos of it. Cost fifty dollars to go to Best Buy and buy a GPS device. This technology was, and, and Google was free. You could upload all the data you wanted. Uh, so that was kind of item number two, or, or pillar number two, which was proof. So the hundred percent model then proved to people what we did with their money. And then the third thing was, I wanted to build a really beautiful brand. As I looked at the charitable sector, there was nothing that resembled Apple or Nike, Virgin. Charity brands sucked, man. They used shame and guilt. To peddle their wares. Yeah. You know, they tried to make people feel as lousy as possible for having too much. And then, I mean, you remember those commercials, the Sally Struthers, the kids with flies and slow motion and the 800 number crawling across the screen. To me, that would be as if Nike said, hey, America, you're fat, stupid, and lazy. <laughs> Turn off the stupid television and go run, right? Well, nobody would ever wear a shirt 
for an organization or a company that made him feel like that. Yeah. So instead, Nike says, there's greatness within you, right? You don't have an arm, you can play basketball. You lost your legs, you can still complete a marathon, right? They inspire people, and therefore you want to wear that logo because it, it speaks to inspiration and possibility and greatness. So that was really, I would say Nike, even more so than Apple, was kind of the model of what if a charity could call forth greatness and generosity and compassion and empathy in people and make it look really good make it look good on them and say, we are inviting you to be a part of something amazing, right? We're going to give people clean drinking water. We're going to transform their lives. And, you know, don't do this because you have to. You don't have to help someone 3,000 miles away that you've never met. You don't have to do that. But we wanted to make it so fun and so exciting and so tangible that how could you not, you know, in the same way that how could I not fix someone's roof for $20? How could you not give a village clean water by raising $10,000 or, you know, or how could you not give one person clean water by contributing $30? So that's really been what we've done over, you know, over 10 years. I mean, we we just keep coming back to those pillars, 100% be transparent with people's money, prove it, show them the impact by all means possible and invite them into it um, and tell stories of hope and heroism and possibility, not shame and guilt. What's fascinating is to see not just the number of people who've gotten involved, because I believe people are inherently good. And when they hear the case that you presented, they want to jump in and they want to be part of that. But literally the ages of some of the people who have gotten involved and been part of this movement. You know, you have children donating their birthdays in lieu of gifts and and asking for donations to Charity Water. Talk to me about some of that, and in particular, if you told the story of Rachel. So people were donating early on, and the the organization grew really quickly. So our first few years in operation, we grew 395% over that three-year term. And interestingly, charitable giving in America was actually dropping over that three-year period. So it was net negative 10%. So people were giving less. And the the model worked. I mean, people were responding. We did 2 million our first year, 6 million our second year, 9 million um, the third year, 16 million the the next year. So it just, it grew really quickly. One of the ideas that we stumbled upon was this idea of asking people to donate their birthday to Charity Water. And we said, look, birthdays have become pretty materialistic. How much stuff can I get or even give? They've become about gift cards and ties and wallets and socks and handbags and celebrating ourselves with parties that cost a lot of money. And We thought, well, what if we could kind of reclaim the birthday? What if we could turn it on its head and turn it into this redemptive, generous moment where your birthday isn't about you that year, it's about others? You know, we said, look, so many kids are dying. 4,500 kids at the time were dying every day before the age of five. So if we gave up our birthday and raised money for clean water, people would actually have more birthdays, you know, so sort of our birthdays for their birthdays. I thought the sticky kind of marketing idea that might spread would be that people would ask for their age and dollar donations. So I, I turned 32 and I asked everyone I knew to donate 32 bucks for my 32nd birthday. And as you said, kids started doing this, five-year-olds asking for $5, 89-year-olds asking for $89. And you mentioned this um, this one story. There was a nine-year-old girl named Rachel Beckwith in Seattle, Washington. She went to this really uh, kind of trendy church that had thrown a fundraiser for charity water that they turned into a keg party for the town. <laughs> and uh, they wound up raising $500,000 
because, you know, they said, look, and, and Charity Water is actually not a religious organization. So they specifically picked us because we're not a religious organization, but we're values aligned. And they said, we want to show our town that, you know, we care about people getting clean water without strings, right? This isn't like kiss the cross and we'll give you clean water. So they threw a giant keg party and like a thousand people turned up and they got local bands and raised $500,000. So I went out to Seattle to thank the church community. And then at the end of my speech, I asked all thousand people, hey, would you consider donating your next birthday? So Rachel's in the audience. She was eight turning nine. She sets up a campaign on my charity water and tries to raise $300. So she wanted to help 10 people get clean water. She raises $220. So she's actually disappointed that she has fallen short of her goal. And she tells her mom, I'm going to try harder next year, but at least I got a few people clean water. So right after her birthday campaign, I was in the Central African Republic coming off of a 10 day trip or so. And I land in New York, I turn on my phone and I get a call from her pastor saying that Rachel's been killed in a car crash. It was a 20 car pileup. She was actually the only fatality. A tractor trailer just smashed into the back seat of the car that her mom was driving, her sister in the front. Obviously a heartbreaking you know, event for the church community, for the family. Rachel's mom asks that we reopen her, her campaign, which was effectively her last wish, right? That instead of birthday gifts, instead of a birthday party, she wanted kids she'd never met thousands of miles away mm. to get clean water. The pastor says, look, you know, I'm going to have my church community blow this campaign up and we're all going to donate $9. They did. And it starts to spread through the community, through the Seattle area, starts spreading across the country. You know, the New York Times picks up the story, the Today Show starts spreading to Europe and then it starts spreading to Africa and people in Africa start donating $9 to Rachel's campaign. So she goes from raising $220 alive to raising $1.3 million as almost 40,000 complete strangers who had never met Rachel in their life are so inspired by the purity of this act that they donate $9 and $99 and $999 and $19 and $109. You know, it was amazing. And I, I, I got to take her mother and her grandparents on the one-year anniversary of her death to Ethiopia on that exact day, you know, a year later to meet thousands of the children who had clean water. So we went village to village to village, visiting Rachel's wells, visiting these places where communities have been drinking from swamps, and now we're drinking clean water because of the vision of this nine-year-old girl. What's even cooler now is five years later, you know, we looked at that data set of the people that gave to Rachel's campaign, and so many of them followed her lead, went on to donate their birthdays. They've raised another $2 million. So Rachel has like a $3 million impact, helping over 100,000 thousand people get clean water for the first time from a vision of helping 10. One person with a $3 million impact, literally a child has that kind of impact. And I think there's people listening right now who can relate to that thinking of what can I do? I'm one person. I mean, even for you, I, Scott, you know, you're this guy who came back and was a club promoter with a huge heart and a desire to serve and help these people. But at some point you came back and went, I don't know anything about drilling for water. I don't know about water sanitation. Was there a part of you even getting into this endeavor that just thought it was beyond you, that maybe you couldn't figure it out? Because I really think that's an important point for people, that when you just take the first step with courage, that the path, the clarity that you need, the knowledge that you need to gain will all become apparent. But most people stay paralyzed by the fear that they're not good enough to even make the impact. Yeah, I mean, we just figured it out as we went along. And I knew what I thought I could do well, which was tell the story of why people need clean drinking water. I mean, it, it wasn't a tough one. 
you know, I'm, I'm honest. I mean, you know, I make about a hundred speeches a year and I fly around. Nobody tells me to stop. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't come off stage, you know, at at an event like the one we were at together and people don't, you know, corner me in the bathroom and say, please stop giving humans clean drinking water. You know, (laughs) you just, it's just not a good idea. I, I knew how to tell stories. I knew how to get people excited, you know, in the same way that I could get them to queue up outside of velvet rope for, you know, $15 cocktails. Yeah. What a much better party to promote, you know, the party where people's lives are being transformed through generosity, compassion, empathy, and clean water at the other end of it. On the implementation side, I really just outsourced that, said, hey, look, we are going to work through local partners, and I'm going to go and find the people with the expertise to drill these wells and build these rainwater harvesting systems and build the solar and gravity-fed systems and the biosand filters. You know, I'll raise the money and the awareness with our team, and then I just believe for work to be sustainable anyway, it had to be led by the local. I mean, nobody yeah. that looks like me should be drilling wells in Malawi. A guy like me can be telling the story of the amazing guys in Malawi who are drilling wells, leading their community and their people forward. But they're the ones that are getting the credit. So what I'm so proud of today is, you know, Charity Water employs over 1,500 locals across about 15 countries now. And we have a small team of 78 people in New York, you know, that are raising the awareness and the money and, and building the organization. But the 1,500 people around the world, they're the ones getting the credit. Yeah. I mean, in some of these places, we'll have invested $10 million and the communities wouldn't know anything about Charity Water. They would know about the local organization that came in, the Rwandan guys that drilled the well in Rwanda in their village. So to date, how many people have clean drinking water because of Charity Water's efforts? Uh, 8.2 million. 8.2 million. And the number overall of people who lack clean drinking water is in the 663 million. Yeah. So we've solved 1.2% of the global problem. So we got to go about 80 to 80 sometimes faster or do 80 times more. (laughs) But what was interesting to me is to hear the relatively small monetary denominations it takes. Like what is the cost to drill a new well in a country where there's no drinking water? About ten to $12,000. Yeah, $10,000. I mean, literally. And you're helping pe- 300 people, so it's about $30 a person. For what you would pay to go buy a new car, to get a fully loaded Honda Accord, you could, you know. You do bring, a couple wells. Yeah, you could do two to three wells for people who need it. So this has been like a huge thing since I saw your presentation. And I was sitting with Mastin Kip, who you know, when we were in Dallas, he's he's my mentor. And I looked over at him and I said, I don't even know how I'm going to do this. I'm still building my business. I said, but by the end of 2018, I want to be personally responsible to have financed a new well somewhere in the world. So that is where we're coming to right now and sort of teaming up here with this podcast and our friends at the Elvis Duran Show. And we have got a link set up where people can get involved because it is World Water Day, the week that we're releasing this podcast. And can you speak quickly about World Water Day and what that initiative is? Well, it's kind of a wonky UN day, right? That, you know, it's like World AIDS Day or World Malaria Day. It's an excuse for people to stop for a moment and I think at best deeply engage with the issue or learn something about it or give. You know, I mean, World Water Day for us is 365 days a year for the people that we're trying to serve. It's definitely a moment where you know, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of you know, a lot of events going on around the world trying to get people to stop and care about this issue. That you know, one of the biggest problems is that you know the people listening, like you haven't even thought about water. 
Right. I mean, I had to follow um, the CEO of Livestrong once, uh, a guy named Doug Ullman. At a, we were speaking at the Inc. 5000 conference. And, you know, he gets on stage in front of me, about a thousand people in the audience. And he says, OK, how many of you have had cancer? Raise your hand. Right? And then he says, how many people have had a family member with cancer? Now we've got half the audience up. He said, how about a friend? Right. hundred percent of the audience has their hands up. And then he begins his speech. You know, if I get up on stage or, you know, talk to you in a podcast and say, how many people have lost? someone due to schistosomiasis or cholera, right? <laughs> yeah, How many people have walked eight hours to get dirty water from a river? You know, nobody. Um, every once in a while, I'll do this on stage, and there might be one or two people that have emigrated from one of these countries where we serve that come up and shake me furiously afterwards saying, I, I, I know, I walked for water. I was sick growing up. I lost a relative. I lost a, a brother or a sister to diarrhea or dysentery. It's, it's rare, right? It would be one in, one in a couple thousand. So that's the biggest challenge for us. So that's what World Water Day just makes it a little easier for this one day. The best way I think people can help out outside of you know, being able to sponsor an entire water project because there may be people listening that could do that with their business. Or my wife and I are on one nonprofit salary. We do at least one well every single year. Since starting Charity Water, we've done 16. So, you know, we eat our own dog food and it's an amazing thing like to be able to do. So maybe there's people listening that could actually do an entire community. But what we're really most excited about is this new community we're building called The Spring. It's just a bunch of people that can show up every month in the same way they're showing up for Netflix or Spotify or HBO. And and subscribe for clean water. Basically, every $30, we can give one person clean drinking water and 100% goes. So we launched this community about a year ago. We called it The Spring, and it's now expanded to people in 94 countries giving what they can. We have people giving as little as $10 a month, and we have people giving $100 a month and $300 a month. And the average person is actually giving $30 a month, which is, which is enough to give one person clean water. So that's probably the most useful way that people can first engage with us, because now being in this for, for 11 years, having been to 67 countries now. And it's hard telling the story. It's hard raising money, but it's even harder having to go out and just find new people yeah. every single month, every single year. So it's been exciting to us to really build a community of people who will stick by us. Loyalty is in scarce demand these days. You know, we're kind of saying, hey, look, why don't you stick with us in the same way you're loyal to the content? And we'll create a program where 100% of the benefit is passed on to the poorest people in the world who need clean water. And we'll show you that impact. In fact, we have a team in Rwanda right now that's making content of impact specifically for the spring members, the people that are giving monthly, showing them, you know, where their money is going and what it's doing. So I think we actually set up a link for your tribe just at charitywater.org slash Elvis, where people could join and we could actually, you know, track the impact of your community. There's also a video on that page uh, that shares the charity water story. So if people wanted to see some of the visuals, we talk about dirty water, go and actually see some of the water, you know, in this video that people are drinking and, and it, it's hard not to, not to want to help. And people could join and they could help share the story. We don't have uh, big marketing budgets. You know, we're not renting out billboards or running TV commercials. The movement has to spread by everyday people just telling their friends through word of mouth. You know, I've been donating on my own month to month, but uh, this will encourage me just to go enroll in the spring and just make that monthly commitment. I'm in for 300 a month personally. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah, wow, that's so so cool. I am in for that. And, uh, you know, as my business grows, I intend to give even more. I just, I'm all about this mission. I have so much respect for you and the work that you are doing. And it really is, you know, a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is people who have found their purpose and found a way to contribute. And simply the desire to want to contribute 
is what you need. Like you didn't need all the knowledge on how to properly drill and filter water before you stepped into this. And I think that that's such a good example for people listening right now. Just show up, just show up and, and give your gifts, give your talents. For you, you're an amazing storyteller. For somebody else listening right now, they might have another gift within them that's gonna make an impact in the world. The more people that we have doing this work for whatever the charities are, you know, the better planet we have. So it, it means the world to me that you took some time out to do the podcast today. Once again, charitywater.org slash Elvis. And I know our friends on the Elvis Duran show are going to be talking this up this week a lot also. But Scott, all the best. It is it is really a privilege to help you spread this message. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, it's been great being able to share with your community. A pretty incredible story, isn't it? So many amazing themes in that interview that no matter where you're at right now, no matter how much shame you have about your current life, it's never too late for you to make a change, get involved, and become a person of purpose. And I love that idea about not getting caught up in the, how do I make this happen? You know, I talk to people all the time who are ready to create a huge shift in their life. They're like, I don't know how to do this next great thing. Here's a great example of a guy who just took action. He focused on his gifts and was able to ask for help from the people who knew the things that he didn't know. That's a big thing, being vulnerable enough just to admit what you don't know and seek out people who can help you advance your purpose in life. It's one thing to hear Scott's story. It's a whole other thing to see the images of Scott. Scott's journey along the way, when you see the effect that Charity Water is having in the world, I promise you by the end of that video, you're going to need a tissue. The work that they're doing is incredible. We have that set up for you right now at our link, charitywater.org slash Elvis. And of course, Elvis Duran and I are teaming up to raise some money. My goal this week is to raise $10,000. I would love to facilitate one new well being drilled somewhere in the country for people who need it. And you heard about my contribution that I'm committed to, that will help us get a good part of the way there, but I would love your help. Whether you can donate $5 a month, whether you can donate $30 a month, or if you want to match my donation of $300 a month to Charity Water and you screenshot that and send it to me, the first three people to respond, I will kick in a complimentary 60-minute life strategy session. So you can get a free coaching session with me. We can talk about wherever you're feeling stuck in your life and how to help you achieve a breakthrough. Just my way to help incentivize this and uh, to do my part to further help raise money for this cause. I believe so much in the organization organization. I believe so much in Scott and what they're doing. And I would love to invite you to join us on this mission. When you think about it, over 8 million people have clean drinking water, but there's still another 658 million people out there who are struggling. So let's come together. Let's be part of that solution. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you love this interview, will you please screenshot it and upload it to Instagram and Twitter? Let your friends know about it. Don't forget to tag both Scott and I in it. You can find him at at Scott Harrison, and you can find me at CSC. Dan Mason would love to know that you're listening and would love to hear how his story inspired you. And don't forget, if you want to join our private Facebook community for Life Amplified, you can do that, facebook.com slash groups slash Life Amplified. And you can always find out more about how you and I can work together to help you create your life of purpose and make the impact that you're meant to make in this lifetime. More details on that at my website, 
website, creativesoulcoaching.net. In the meantime, turn down the volume on your negativity, turn up the volume on your purpose so you can get out there and live life amplified. I'll talk to you next time.